James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wild fowl. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. <coughs> Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Well, let me pray for us before we look further at this passage together. Our Lord God, do indeed speak to us through your holy word this morning. And may your spirit take these words and open the eyes of our hearts and minds to understand them and also to understand their wonderful implications, uh, the way they equip us to live in a fallen, fractured world. To your glory. Amen. Our seven-year-old boy, Zabi, uh, is quite a normal boy. He lives a normal life for kids in Sydney, as normal as it gets. Uh, he's into models and he enjoys hanging out with his older brothers. Uh, he and his brothers always have food on the table, even though they don't always appreciate it. Uh, the only time they haven't had a roof over their head is when they've gone camping. They have, really, a very good life. I was reading recently about a girl probably of a similar age to Zabi, but her life situation is very different. Her name is Rika, and she roams the streets of a city in Pakistan carrying her baby brother on her hips. She begs or sells barley colouring books, and in winter the cold cuts through her clothes, and in summer she swelters in the heat. Rika is on the streets because she was born into a Christian family. And in Pakistan, Christians are the lowest of the low. And it means she was born very poor, and it also means that she will never be safe. As middle-class Western Christians, we of course are protected 
from the trials that so many Christians face because they are poor. Many Christians in the early church in the first century certainly weren't middle class themselves. In fact, the assumption, we see this in James chapter 2, verse 5, is that the majority of James's readers were poor. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? Poverty can be devastating. Even in this country of Australia, a report compiled by a social welfare organisation lists some of the following effects of poverty, and I quote, uh, families and individuals are forced to choose between eating and eating. They suffer from a lack of education and opportunity, and a lowering of self-esteem and motivation. Uh, one of my friends uh, got a tiny insight into this self-esteem issue one summer when he signed up for temporary work at an agency which placed people doing heavy manual labour. He himself was a white-collar worker uh, between jobs at the time, and he recounts this experience in his own words, and I quote, Each day I'd get assigned to a warehouse or a removals van. I turned up in scruffy clothes because I was doing manual work. I found that people in suits looked at me and treated me very differently from when I worked in an office. I was made to feel like dirt. I was struck by how quickly my self-esteem was whittled away. But look at James's message to the poor Christians in verse 9. It says this, The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. How on earth can a poor person take pride in their high position? The answer lies in how they choose to view themselves. They see they don't view themselves through the eyes of the world, but through the eyes of God. The poor Christian needs to remember God's assessment of them. I am a precious and loved child of God, and I am heading for glory. That is my identity. The world may treat me like dirt, but in God's eyes, I am gold, and I have a golden destiny. Uh, incidentally, uh, this looking to God's assessment of us is key to self-esteem issues more generally. Uh, we know, of course, that when uh, people, women who have children, have to give up work outside the home, they often struggle with issues of self-esteem. They can feel that others look down on them. But when we feel lowly in the world's eyes, we need to remember who we are in God's eyes and where we are heading. Uh, I've recommended one of the books, um, I've got to recommend two books this morning. The first is uh, on your handouts, uh, Identity Theft, which uh, is very good, Reclaiming the Truth of Who We Are in Christ. I've not actually read it yet, but um, it's in the Reformers Bookshop, which is always a very good sign, because they're not good books. And it's got a, a good array of uh, contributors to it. Uh, the second book, which is, uh, I'd also recommend, is this one by Ed Welch, uh, When People Are Small, and sorry, When People Are Big and God Seems Is Small, Overcoming Peer Pressure, Codependency and the Fear of Man. So another good book about who God is and Christian identity rooted in him. I'd recommend those both to you. So, coming back to James, 
not only does James apply this divine perspective to the poor Christians, but to the rich Christians as well. Because as rich Christians, we too need to remember God's assessment of us. Again, starting at verse 9. The brother in humblesome circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position. Our wealth can make us feel superior to others. Our wealth gives us power. Wealth gives us, gives us influence in the world. It allows us to buy things that give us status. But of course, in God's sight, all those things count for nothing. We're just saved sinners, no better than Rika and her brother in that city in Pakistan. You see, our wealth may make us feel secure, but it is illusory. The reality is that one day, we too are going to die. And of course, we're not going to take any of it with us. And that is the humiliation of verse 10. If we get at James 1, verse 10. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Our kids do enjoy playing Monopoly. Of course, Monopoly can get quite serious. Uh, wealth and power imbalances can develop very quickly. Uh, somebody starts building hotels on those dark blue expensive properties in Barossa and Adelaide. And then others land on them, and vast sums of money are soon changing hands. One player is raking it in and gets very smug, and the other goes bankrupt and gets very grumpy. And it's left to the mum and dad to try and sort out the aftermath. But you know what? At the end of the game, it all goes back in the box. All the money, all the property, it's game over. And so it is also with our lives. The distribution of wealth is unequal now, but soon it's going to be game over, and everything we have will go back in the box. And what then? Well then, of course, it is only God's assessment of us that matters. As rich Western Christians, we need to be very careful, because our wealth spares us many of the trials that poor Christians face. But this same wealth can be spiritually very dangerous. It can make us proud. It can give us a false sense of security. It can make us forget that we too are going to one day die. And it can lead to a divided heart that tries to serve two masters. And we'll see in later chapters of James that he will have plenty more to say to us about our wealth in the rest of his letter. But uh, before we leave this subject of trials, James has one more lesson for us. Uh, we've seen the first tool today in trials, remember God's assessments, and now we see the, the second and final tool in trials, remember God's goodness. 
What is the big danger in trials for a Christian? Surely it is to say, God doesn't care. How could he let this happen to me? And what is the temptation? Well, it's to give up, ultimately. To throw the towel of our Christian faith into the ring. And it's to this that Jane now turns, verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Trials bring with them temptations, a temptation to sin. When you hit your thumb with a hammer, that's a trial. You face the temptation to let out words which should not be spoken and to lash out at whoever's nearby. That when you get stuck in traffic, it's a trial. And with that trial comes the temptation to get angry with your fellow drivers and to become impatient and to lose your temper. If you're having difficulties in your marriage, that's a trial. And with it comes the temptation to be unloving to your spouse, or even unfaithful to your spouse. And if you're far too seriously ill, it's a trial. And with it comes the temptation to become unkind and grumpy. Where do these temptations come from? They don't come from God. Uh, God uses the trials to test and refine our faith, but he's not tempting us to sin. Verse 12, uh, verse 13, sorry. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So where is the temptation coming from? Verse 14. It continues, but each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. When we are under pressure and we sin, who do we have to blame? Only ourselves, not God. It's just our own sinful desires that we are giving into. It's interesting that when we pull the strands of teaching in chapter one together, we see that in any trial, two things are happening at the same time. Firstly, God is testing us to refine us. Whereas evil is tempting us to fail. So God is using the trial to test and refine our faith so that our character is stronger and purer. But at the same time, evil is trying to use the same trial to destructive ends, to tempt us to falter in our faith. It is easy, isn't it, to turn against God and to resort to the blame game when things are going wrong. Uh, yes, God is sovereign, and no trials come our way apart from his sovereign will. But if in that trial we sin, we don't go ourselves to blame. You see, God would never tempt us to sin. Uh, he will test our faith, but he won't tempt us to sin. It's our own sinful desires doing that. Uh, what do we see in the Garden of Eden? Chapter 3. 
after the fall and everything's gone wrong, God confronts the man with his simple disobedience. And what does he do? He tries to evade responsibility. He even has the cheek to try and partially blame God. Genesis 3 verse 12, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. It's your fault, God. You put her here. She's made this mess, but you put her there. In a difficult marriage, uh, we may be tempted to justify our sin of online pornography or unfaithfulness. You put this woman, you put this man here with me, and she or he has made life very hard. And this is just my way of coping. I deserve this. Or if we're run down from a sapping illness and we lose our temper with the kids or our spouse, we may try and attribute some blame to God. It's your fault I'm sinning, God. You haven't answered my prayers for healing. The reality is that we lost our rank because we gave in to our own sinful desires. If instead we'd sought God's wisdom and strength, it could have been an opportunity to mature in our faith. If God were using our trials to entice us to sin, he'd be a pretty unpleasant character, wouldn't he? And that is what, of course, the devil wants us to think. But that is not what God is like. Look at verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. When life is hard, when we're up against it, when things are going wrong, we need to hold on to those two fundamental truths. God is sovereign, he's in control, and secondly, God is good. That is what Corrie and her sister Betsy needed to hold on to in that prison camp. God's in control, and he is good, and he will bring good, even from this horrible situation with the police. And that gave them the ability to thank God, even in those circumstances. Every good gift in the world comes from God. And he is the generous, giving, good God. He is the Father who created the world. Uh, the title here is the Father of Lights, the Father of the Sun, and the Father of the Moon. But unlike the Sun and the Moon, He doesn't change. God's goodness is constant. And the very fact that He's given us new life through the Gospel is ample evidence of His goodness to us. Because, of course, it's undeserved. And He didn't have to give us that priceless gift. Verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. There it is, God's goodness. So, when circumstances are difficult, and maybe there you are at the moment, holding on to that truth, that is the truth to hold on to. God is in control. God is good. I once observed an assembly in a Christian school and in the assembly, they used a simple but effective interactive liturgy between the teacher's meeting and the kids. The leader would say, God is good. And the kids would reply, all the time. The leader would say, 
all the time, and the kids would reply, God's good. Wouldn't that be a great liturgy for us to say to ourselves in the mirror every morning? God is good. All the time. And all the time. God is good. So if life is easy at the moment, this truth is worth embedding in our consciousness. So that when difficult times do come, it's just there. It's ready to go. Whatever happens, I know that God is good. And then I won't blame and I won't turn against God like Adam. Instead, I'll trust and worship him in hard times like Job. And I will pray for God's wisdom to view this trial from his perspective. Because I know that this trial is testing and refining my faith. It's an opportunity for me to mature in my character as a Christian. And it strengthens my faith so that I keep going on the rocky road that leads ultimately to glory and to the crown of life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this profound passage of scripture which reminds us of who you are, the good, generous, sovereign God who gives good things to his children. And who works good even from difficult and hard situations. Help us to hold on to the fact that you are good all of the time and never to let go of that. And help us to encourage each other as we continue on this journey to glory together. Amen.